all around the world, uh, and not only around the world, even here in the United States of America, outside of courthouses and, and justice centers, uh, there are these famous and historic statues of what we call Lady Justice. Uh, Lady Justice is a, was a, originally kind of evolved from a Roman goddess, and throughout Western civilization and Western culture, she kind of evolved from being a goddess to sort of being a, a, a metaphor or a symbol, if you will, of justice itself. And so all around the world, there are these large statues of Lady Justice. Now, they're typically designed differently. It, there's not like one blueprint, and some of them are more artistic than others, and some of them are more beautiful, and they look a little different. But there's three things that Lady Justice always has in common. And Lady Justice is always holding a scale, holding a sword, and she's blindfolded. She has a blindfold. Lady Justice is always blind. And these things have important symbolism to them. The sword really symbolism, symbolizes the, the punitive nature of justice, that if there wasn't any kind of uh, recompense, if there wasn't any, any, um, any, any consequence to our actions, then what really is justice? If you're declared guilty, but nothing follows, then justice is very hollow and vapid at that point. So the sword symbolizes that in order for justice to be justice, there needs to be punitive measures. The scale symbolizes that justice is to actually hear arguments, that it is not um, flippant, it is not chance, it is not random, uh, but that things are weighed and measured and, and, and heard and examined. Justice takes evidence and things into consideration in order to make a proper uh, rendering. And then lastly, and what will somewhat be most important to us today is justice is always blind. Now, we want to be careful what we mean by that. The, the, the blindfold on Lady Justice, what it symbolizes is that justice is not to show partiality. Meaning a crime is a crime, a sin is a sin. It doesn't matter what your skin color is, we're blind to that. It doesn't matter if you're poor, we're blind to that. It doesn't matter if you're rich, we're blind to that. For justice to truly be justice, it is impartial to your race, your socioeconomic status, and that's what is the blindfold is to represent. We don't want to treat certain people unfairly, hold different scales because of maybe where they come from or who their parents are or how much money they have or how much money they don't have. Justice is blind. Justice is impartial. And if you would open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, as we continue in our sermon series through 1 Timothy, I think we're going to see that, that Paul shares these opinions of justice. We, we're sort of in the middle of the section where Paul talks about honoring our pastors. We did a couple weeks on honoring widows. Next week we'll be slave and slave owners, but we're still discussing how does the local church honor its pastors. And, and Paul talks about how they're worthy of a double honor. They're worthy of respect and, 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 uh, and payment was the other aspect of that. And we focused last week most of our time on the concept of pastors getting paychecks. But I think Paul's line of thought now can be best characterized as understanding, I, I just got done telling the church that they need to honor their pastors. But this can go wrong if we don't understand the boundaries and limitations of what that means and what that looks like. And so the Apostle Paul in our text today is going to set great boundaries for how we do not abuse or neglect this principle of honoring pastors. In other words, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a very brief 101 introductory lesson into how do we treat our pastors fairly. 
How do we treat our pastors fairly? And this is an important issue because we saw that even with the widows, that we are called to honor them. But then Paul went on to say, but that looks different depending on the situation. And so fairness is not the same thing as equality. Fairness and equality are not exactly the same thing. Pastors are not equal with members. They have a different authority as other members. They have a different role as other members. We're not trying to obliterate the authority structure and make all things equal, but we are trying to make all things fair. And when we honor pastors, that can be done in such a way that we actually treat them unfairly. And that can be neglected in such a way that we treat them unfairly. And so Paul is really going to show us uh, the, the proper way in which we honor our pastors by treating them fairly and not neglecting this, but not getting carried away with it at the same time. So if you would, uh, begin with me in verse 19, and we will read through the end of the chapter. And I would ask you to please follow along, for these are the very words of God. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So before we really break down this text, I just remind folks that some of you, in case you weren't here, uh, I consider verse 23 a side note. And so two weeks ago, we dedicated our entire sermon to verse 23. Uh, and so that's not going to occupy our time here. But I just, if you missed that, I didn't want you to think that I was, you know, glossing over it or sweeping it under the rug. We dealt with that uh, hopefully very clearly and very forcefully. But as what I want us to take away from this overall text here is there are really three ways in which we treat pastors fairly. And the three ways is that pastors deserve proper protection, proper punishment, and proper placement. Pastors need proper protection, proper punishment, and proper placement. Protection, punishment, and placement. And he begins this in verse 19 by talking about how, about how pastors deserve proper protection. We honor our pastors by protecting them. Now, how do we do that? What does he say in verse 19? Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, when you first read this, there, there's something, at least in my mind, that was a little peculiar about it. What is it that's peculiar about this? Well, to me, it's the fact that this is not any kind of new standard, right? Is, is, does it follow from this that the members of the church, we should accept accusations without two or three witnesses? Well, no, because we see in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus deals with church discipline, every member of the congregation deserves to be fairly and justly examined before we just go running off and punishing them for sin, and in Matthew 18, guess what the standard is that Jesus gives for every member of the congregation? He takes the principle from the Old Testament and applies it to the new, a standard of two or three independent lines of confirmation. So it's, it, what's, what's peculiar here is Paul's not saying they're pastors, so they deserve a special standard. 
He's saying, they're your pastors, therefore they deserve the same standard as everybody else. Why does Paul feel the need to say that? that? It seems like that should be obvious to us. He really should only speak to us unless something has changed. Like, well, they're pastors, so they, they need more. Well, I think what Paul is getting at here is, is anybody who's in any kind of position of authority, whether in a church or in government or in a school district or at your workplace, anyone who wields any kind of authority is always more prone to accusations than other people who aren't. Why? Because people want the notoriety and they want the authority. So I, uh, what Paul is really getting at here is it's not common, it's not uncommon, forgive me, for pastors to receive accusations at a higher level of rate than other people in the church because, well, they're the ones making a lot of decisions and sometimes that rubs people the wrong way. So Paul is simply reminding us that sometimes we hear scandalous things about pastors and other church leaders and because of their influence and because of their authority, we are, if anything, more prone to believe it. You hear on the news maybe a pastor who's fallen sexually or accused of that kind of a sin and maybe he's a best-selling author or maybe he's the pastor of a church you don't like. And so we are so quick to believe it. Paul says, no, they, de they deserve fairness. We ought to protect them. If you hear things about me, I would ask that you would first come talk to me. But things about me or the other pastors here, pastors in any church, we should not just believe and accept accusations and we should recognize that because of their position of authority, especially if pastors are involved in the work of church discipline, and they really rub people the wrong way a lot of times. People in authority, people with notoriety, no matter the scale of the community, within that community, those who have authority and notoriety are prone to false accusation. You see this in the news all the time, like with celebrities and, 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 and uh, you know, sports stars. There's accusations all the time, and what's their first line of defense? This person just wants to be famous. They might be right, they might be wrong, depends on the case, but the point is, is even celebrities realize that I am probably more prone to a false accusation than somebody else. That was the whole, I, I won't get into politics right now, I promise, but this was the whole drama behind the Brett Kavanaugh thing, was the people who were supporting him were saying, this accusation is only coming to prevent him from doing what he's been appointed to do. So even, whether you agree with that or not, the point is, is we recognize that people with notoriety, people in positions of authority are prone to accusations, and I think a lot of times we're prone to believe them. And so Paul is reminding us that your pastor deserves the same protection that's afforded to you. If you don't want people to just make stuff up about you and have the rest of the church believe it, then you should do that with your pastors. As a matter of fact, if you were to read, um, for example, in church history, um, one of our oldest surviving documents from the church fathers is known as First and Second Clement. And First Clement is attributed to a man named Clement, but it really was written by the entire church of Rome, and he was kind of the leader of the church of Rome at that time. And it was written to the church in Corinth, and what was happening in Corinth was there was sort of a, uh, there was, someone had sort of fomented insurrection against the pastors. Now, I, I haven't studied it, I don't know if the pastors, maybe the pastors really were in the wrong but the point is, is early in church history, we have, I mean, Clement, th this is a man who likely knew some of the apostles. That's how early we're talking about. And that early on, in one of the churches the apostles themselves established, we already had the congregation making accusations against the pastors looking for new leadership.
We're prone to that. And unfortunately, I, I know even in my own personal experience, and I've talked to Pastor Jesse, and I, I grew up with a dad who's a pastor. I, I know that many pastors are just unfortunately all too familiar with rumors and gossip and accusations that are unfounded and untrue. But it catches, and, it, and, and like, like fire, it spreads throughout the congregation and it causes unnecessary drama. And so we need to remember that our pastors deserve protection. They deserve fairness. We need to sympathize with them and hear them out and examine every situation fairly. However, I think Paul also knows that this principle in itself can evolve into something very unbiblical, which is probably even more common than what we're talking about now, which is that pastors eventually grow to some kind of celebrity status where they're then untouchable. They can do no wrong. And no matter what they do, people are quick to defend and excuse them. Your pastor might be a best-selling author. And if this sin gets out, what does it do for book sales and revenues and the, and, and the state of your church, quite honestly? What does it do for the reputation of your church when your pastor falls into gross sin? It's better for the rest of us, right, if we just, let's just keep that under wraps. Let's restore him in private. And Pastors can be protected too much. We can, quote-unquote, honor them so much that they can do no wrong. We defend them at every turn. When they are openly in sin, we find private ways of trying to deal with that so it doesn't tarnish our reputation. So while pastors deserve protection, they don't deserve too much protection. And that's why Paul tells us right after telling us that we should not accept a charge without proper evidentiary basis, he says in verse 20, as for those who persist in sin... So the point here is, okay, they've made it obvious. It's been established, and they're not stopping. What do we do? Rebuke them in the presence of all. So they need not just proper protection, but they need proper punishment. If a pastor is in unrepentant, proven sin, you deal with it publicly. And why do we do that? Look at the, it, it's kind of a harsh nature to this verse, right? Why do we do that? Comma, so that the rest may stand in fear. When a pastor is in an unrepentant sin, you don't deal with it privately. You deal with it publicly. In other words, Paul's saying, if, don't just accept the sins of your pastor if you hear it. You need to prove it. But if it's proven and he refuses to repent, it's time to make an example out of him. That, that, that's literally what he's saying. So the rest may stand in fear. It's time to make an example out of him. It's time to rebuke him publicly in such a way that it will deter the rest of the pastors and the rest of the congregation from following in his sin, from approving of his sin. And this, is, this is a controversial thing. This is another standard like the two or three witnesses that most churches apply not just to pastors but to all members. That's why you'll find oftentimes, and some of you maybe have had to do this, I don't know your personal backgrounds, but oftentimes in churches, when members fall into sin, unrepentant sin, or even repent sin, they're looking to be restored, at some point in time, as Matthew 18 also says, that is brought before the congregation. And the congregation is informed of what's been going on. And that can be presented in a really disgusting light. Like we're just trying to bully people, and we're trying to shame people, and we're trying to crush people. But you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 when he commands them to, to publicly shame and excommunicate a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law? Paul says, we do this, we hand him over to Satan to be destroyed by his flesh so that he might return to us in repentance. 
this public humiliation, this shaming, is not a bad thing. I think one of the greatest uh, sins of our culture is we have convinced people that shame is always a bad thing. There's a book, I, I haven't read it, um, but I, I trust the author enough that I want to get it because I think I eventually will recommend it to you. It's called The Grace of Shame. And the whole book is about how shame can be a good thing in our lives. It can deter us from sin. It can keep us holy. It can help protect us. I want, so let me just make it personal since we're talking about pastors right now. I want, if I were to ever be unfaithful to my wife, I deserve to feel shame for that. You deserve to shame me. And the fear of even imagining having to stand before this congregation and admit to you what I've done to my wife is terrifying. I don't want that shame. I don't want that embarrassment. And the Lord uses that and scares me and it helps me treat my wife better. That's why rebuke them in the presence of all so the, uh, the rest might stand in fear. Shame is not always a bad thing. Shame deters us from sin, and as 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 5 tells us, it can actually bring us back to the faith. Again, it's not to say this can't be abused, but that's why this whole thing here is we're talking about fairness. What has to happen before you get to this step? The, the sin has to be proven beyond the shadow of doubt, two or three witnesses, and it has to be unrepentant. He doesn't say if a pastor sins, rebuke him publicly. He says, if he continues in sin. So what we're talking about here is unrepentant, proven sin. When it gets to that level, shame is good. We can shame things too early, and in that case, shame is bad. Right? If, you know, if I were to, you know, maybe say a lie or something, and, and Martha heard me, she lives next down, you know, below me, and then all of a sudden, she thought that was a lie, and I show up at church, and I'm excommunicated. That's harsh. <laughs> But the principle here is that when sin is unrepentant and when sin is proven, it's time to make a public example of someone. And this in and of itself is a gracious and loving thing to do. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And then he transitions in verse 21 something really powerful. He says in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. Paul uses that phrase, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is the only time he throws in the elect angels. He uses that phrase often. What I think he means by the elect angels is uh, angels serve as witnesses. Angels preside over churches. Angels are involved in the state of churches. Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that angels are aware of what we're doing here. So angels and God are serving as witnesses to what we do, specifically to what I'm doing. I, I was just having a conversation with Brother Andrew, and we were talking about, he gave a, a sermon devotional at, 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 to his family, and um, if you don't, you don't mind me sharing, he said he was a little, uh, you know, some of his family maybe was a little rubbed the wrong way. And we talked about, you know, when, whenever we talk about God's truth, whether it's from the pulpit or gospel to families or, or devotionals or whatever, when we're talking about God's truth, we should be very afraid of offense. We should be terrified of offense. 
But we're not afraid of offending you. (laughs) Who is Timothy supposed to be afraid of offending? In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you. See, Paul is reminding Timothy that what you're doing, it might rub some people the wrong way. But who are you concerned about pleasing? Would you rather stand before your congregation and have them praise you, but then die and stand before the Lord and have him rebuke you? No, may you rather receive the rebuke of men and the praise of God. I I love the way that uh, John MacArthur says on this verse, he says that Paul reminds Timothy that God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the angels are watching. They are the ones to fear, not the reactions of men. All heaven is concerned with the purity of the church. The question facing any church is whether it is more concerned about its reputation or God's holiness. He reminds Timothy that God is the one watching you and God is the one concerned with whether you are doing what? Maintaining these rules with what? Impartiality. A blindfold. Lady Justice. That takes us right back to really what the theme is. God cares about justice and fairness in his church. Timothy is not allowed to loosen up on some of these rules because that pastor is just such a good preacher. He's just so good. And I mean, he's he's so, he's so, he's got so much charisma and skill and he's young and he's full of energy. He's bringing new people into our church. We can't, we can't rebuke him. He's too valuable to the operation here. Or maybe we don't want to rebuke a church member because you know what? They give a lot of money to this church. They write a big tithing check every week. We can't lose that tithe. No, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ our judge and the elect angels, you are not to have any partiality. You are to be impartial. I don't care how much money they give to the church. I don't care how influential their ministry has been. If they are in proven, unrepentant sin, you deal with it. But likewise, it can go the other way too. We live in what I call a victim culture where we have this ironic twist why by being a victim makes you more powerful. And people are almost competing over victim statuses. So it's also possible to loosen the reins a little bit because someone's poor or because someone is in a difficult place. You can favor someone because they're poor. In almost every movie nowadays, the poor people are the good guys and the rich people are the bad guys. I, I, went, I got my haircut. The first week I ever came here, I, I got my haircut and uh, they were showing the, uh, no, it wasn't the Kentucky Derby. It was one of the, the big horse races. Uh, it was a really big horse race a couple months ago. And they, the guy who owned the horse that won, the horse won, the guy who owned the horse, he's obviously a wealthy man. That's a wealthy sport. And he looked wealthy, right? He had, you know, slicked gray hair and a super expensive suit and his butt was way down. He glasses that probably cost more than my car. And, and he was being interviewed over the win. And my barber, it made me laugh. My barber said, he looks like the bad guy in a movie. And I laughed at that because it's true. But you see, we can show partiality to the poor as well. We can favor them over rich people as well because maybe of pity or sorrow. 
Impartiality is mandatory in justice. God cares about being impartial. The church is not to favor the rich over the poor. The church is not to favor the poor over the rich. The only time in our entire gospels that we have something as scandalous as one apostle publicly rebuking another apostle is in the book of Galatians when Peter is favoring the Jews. And even though it's a mixed congregation, Peter is sitting with the Jews, he's eating with the Jews, he's favoring the Jews, he's neglecting the Gentiles, and Paul rebukes him publicly in the presence of all and tells him, your actions are not consistent with the gospel right now. Because the gospel is not a gospel that elevates Jew over Gentile. The gospel is not a gospel that elevates the poor over the rich. The gospel is not a gospel that elevates one race or another, but God views us impartially. So I don't care how influential your pastor is, unrepentant public sin needs to be dealt with publicly. And I don't care how, how much someone is lacking influence in your church, unrepentant public sin needs to be dealt with publicly. Because God is an impartial judge, fair and just in all of his ways and we are expected to do the same in the church. And so what Paul then moves into is here's the best way we can just avoid this whole mess. The best way we can just avoid all of this is just put the right people in place. You don't have to so much worry about this if you're not constantly elevating unqualified men to the office of the pastor. So that's why Paul, he says, you know, listen, don't, don't be so quick to hear an accusation, but at the same time, if, if, if there's a real problem here, you need to deal with it. Be fair to your pastors, but here's how we avoid this all together. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. We know from earlier in the letter that this was a sign of ordination, that Timothy became a pastor when the apostles laid hands on him. So Paul is saying, here's how you can avoid all this. Don't put unqualified people in office. And the way that you know that they're qualified, he says, is by not being hasty. What does that mean? Don't do it so quickly. Why don't you take your time and get to know this person and examine this person before giving them influence and authority? Don't be so quick to put people into this position. And he tells them that when you do that, you in some sense are accountable for their sins. That's why he connects it so closely. Don't be so hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In some way, shape, or form that when we just exalt these unqualified men to the office and, and they fail, to some degree, we hold responsibility for that. We take part in whatever it is they're doing that's bringing reproach to the name of Christ and to that church. So keep yourself pure. Don't take part in their sins. And the way you do that is, why don't you take some time? <laughs> don't be so hasty to make men pastors. This needs to be a thoughtful consideration. And that's why we see earlier one of the qualifications of elders is that they can't be new converts. They can't be brand new converts. Why? We don't know if it's stuck yet. We don't know how genuine, authentic, we, this needs time. This needs time. We want to feel good. And we saw the same principle when we talked about the widows. The widows who were exalted to that kind of position of service, Paul said, he, he, he capped them off at 60. <laughs> he said, no, 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 you, you need time. You need to, they need a proven lifestyle before we do this. It's very similar with the elders. Don't be so hasty and exalt. And, and Paul gives us hope that this will work. Look at what he says in verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. 
So there are some people, it's really easy not to make them pastors. They're sinning regularly, right before our eyes. Yeah, some people it's easy, but some people it's not so easy. But Paul tells us, continuing in verse 24, but the sins of others appear later. And in the same way, so also, verse 25, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So what's Paul's point? If there are men in your church qualified to be a pastor, give it time, they'll prove themselves. Even if their good works are conspicuous and you don't see them right now, they will be made manifest. Give them time. And it works the other way too. You might have someone who just joined your church and you're just like, wow, we're feeling good about this guy. Give them time. If there's issues there, they will manifest. They will manifest. Paul is telling us that pastors deserve proper placement. And the way that they deserve to be properly placed is that we are to be patient before giving people that kind of authority and putting them in that kind of role. So as we see, Paul's overall point is here is how we treat pastors fairly. Here is how, is how our fairness is supposed to be blinded, if you will, to be impartial. We, we don't accept an accusation against them unless it's been thoroughly proved. Yet, we are not afraid to deal with them properly when their sin is apparent and unrepentant, and we can avoid that struggle by being wise and godly and patient in our ordination practices in the first place. One commentator said this, we must not be fooled by showy lives and spectacular gifts, for an evil heart may lie beneath them. But watch closely, and you will see beautiful things in the most humble of lives." So really kind of to conclude this entire two-part section on pastors, I, I just want to say two things that I think we've learned from this. Number one, pastors are important. Uh, I don't think Paul would have gone this out of his way and spoken about them this way if they weren't important. Pastors are important. Like the widow, God cares for pastors. They are vital to the health of God's church, and we are to honor them, treat them fairly, and select them carefully. But perhaps the bigger principle we see in all this is that pastors are important to God, but ultimately justice and fairness is important to God. God is a God of justice, of fairness. He is, not a, he is an impartial God, as the scriptures tell us. When we come before God in his mercy and love, we are also coming before a God who is just and fair in all his ways. And, and I want to conclude by this. I wanted to remind us that the gospel itself is ultimately an issue of justice. When we think of the gospel, sometimes we are prone and tempted to think of it as actually being anti-justice. Why? Because what's the whole point of the gospel? I'm not getting what I deserve. It, that's called injustice, isn't it? How is God just in your salvation? Because I'm willing to bet that everyone in this room is willing to admit you don't deserve it. God has saved you and you don't deserve it. Is he unjust? Why am I expected to show fairness and partiality to my pastors and to my church members when apparently God doesn't even show fairness or partiality to people? Turn to Colossians chapter 2. This is what 
Paul says about the nature of the gospel and its relationship to justice. Colossians chapter 2, look at verses 13 through 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So does God just wink at sin then? He just forgives, right? It's just, nah, neither here nor there. Just, we'll just forget about that. Can you imagine if a judge said that? Yeah, you're guilty, but let's just forget about that. You won't tell anyone, I won't tell anyone, we'll be okay. He doesn't just forgive us. There's a basis upon which he forgives us. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So he's forgiven us because the debt we owed has been canceled. And how has it been canceled? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The gospel is an issue of justice. You are forgiven because God has justly dealt with your sins. He has not winked at them. He has not forgotten them, just merely swept them under the rug. He has dealt with them. He's forgiven them. When you are saved, you are not, you personally, we personally are escaping personal justice, but God's justice is not offended. He has dealt with our sin. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, or forgive me, chapter 9. Keep going past the Timothys and Titus, Philemon, all of Paul's letters, and then we get to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9, we're just going to look at just a couple verses from here. This is what the entire Old Testament law was foreshadowing. In the Old Testament, everything was purified by blood. Everything was cleansed by blood. The Old Testament, let's just be honest about it, was a bloody religion. Like we, we come here and, and, and we have people in this church who do a great job sacrificing their time to make this place comfortable and clean and, and I am so grateful for them. And, and I'm not saying that the Jews were uncleanly, but there was a lot of blood in their worship ceremonies. Why? Why the blood? Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 15, talking about how Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant. Verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So again, God has not just winked at your sins. He has not merely just forgiven them. He has dealt with them properly. Look at verse 22 after talking about how the whole old covenant was sprinkled, all the worship was sprinkled in blood. Verse 22, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. God did not just forgive you. He paid for your sins and then he forgave you. The payment of your sins is the basis upon which a holy and righteous God can forgive you. Now, some people might look at that and say, I don't think that's just. 
I don't think that's a just way of dealing with it, but that's not the issue for us right now. The issue is when we look at the gospel, is it an abandonment of justice and fairness? And we say no. People might not like it. People might have their own personal opinions about how God dealt with it. But as the Bible presents the gospel, the Bible presents the gospel as God both showing you mercy and love and simultaneously without contradiction satisfying his justice. And that's what we celebrate, what we will celebrate here in a minute. That not, we don't celebrate that my sins weren't paid for. That's not what we're celebrating. Thank the Lord, my sins don't have to be paid for. That's not what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that they don't have to be paid for by me. But they were dealt with. They were paid for. Why? Because God is just. Because God is fair. Because God is impartial. And that is why as we conduct the affairs of the church, we want to exalt and glorify God in all of his attributes. And we know that because God is just and fair and impartial, we want to treat one another with justice and fairness and impartiality. These are not virtues in a vacuum, if you will. We don't just arbitrarily decide fairness is good, justice is good. No, these are moral laws that are tied to the very character, nature, and being of God. He is a God who loves fairness and justice and impartiality. And so that is why we as God's people value these things as well. And we seek to treat one another and the rest of the world, our neighbors included, with fairness and justice without partiality.